I wonder what is um, the worst piece of financial news that you have ever received? Maybe for some of us, we've just come through tax season. Maybe for some of us, it was discovering that this year you were going to have to pay instead of receiving a refund. But maybe it was worse than that. Maybe it was hearing that the scholarship didn't come through and you suddenly realized that you were going to have to rethink your entire education. Maybe it was discovering that your wages were going down or your rent was going up. And as you did the math, you realized you weren't going to be able to stay where you were living, whether that was a small apartment or your dream home. Maybe it was the biggest bombshell of them all, the you bomb when you discover that your job is going to be eliminated or you are going to be eliminated and now you are unemployed and wondering how you are going to put food on the table. I don't know what the news is for you, but somehow in the face of news like that, in the face of the shock and the grief and the anxiety that gets um, created by financial news like that, a phrase like inconvenient truth doesn't quite seem to capture the depth of the fear of it. But what if I were to tell you that in the book of James, James chapter 5, starting in verse 1, there is financial news that is worse than anything I have mentioned so far. Financial news that doesn't have to do with what we don't have or with what we have lost, but financial news that is terrible and it's about what we do have and or what we have gained. What if the worst financial news possible wasn't about the stuff that we have lost? See, this is how James opens the passage in James chapter 5 verse 1. In the second week of Inconvenient Truth, it says this. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. A real lighthearted guy, James is. Listen, you rich people, weep and wail. You know who's really in financial trouble, James says? It's not those who lack and who have lost. It's those who have. His audience is, quote, rich people. The word in Greek is the word fullness. It is the filled People, the people who have, who have their fill of money and the possessions, people who have stuff in abundance beyond the average experience, people who have more than most and more than enough. That's who James is writing to. I wonder how many of us would put ourselves in that category of having more than most and more than enough. And he says to them, you should weep and wail. Words that are used by the prophets in the Old Testament of the Bible to describe people's reactions to the judgment of God because he says, there are miseries, hardships, troubles that are coming on your 
lives. Let me tell you what was going on in James's world. It was an economy that in some ways had a story similar to the one that we are living in now, where the gap between the rich and the poor was growing large. See, what was happening was that the wealthy elites from the cities were expanding their uh, wealth by purchasing up small family farms from peasant farmers. What they would do is they would drive the farmers to bankruptcy and then buy their farm and force the farmer to farm it as a renter or as a day laborer. See, they realized that through sheer volume, they could control the prices at the marketplace. So when times were good, they would flood the marketplace with product, driving the prices down so that smaller farmers couldn't survive. Think about companies like Amazon and Walmart. When times were bad, they would withhold the product until small farmers had completely sold everything they had and had to declare bankruptcy and then they would trickle the product into the marketplace at exorbitant prices and absolutely make a killing. The worst part about it all was that there was no legal recourse in the courts because many of the judges, lo and behold, were landowners <laughs> or their friends or unafraid to take a bribe. It's those people that James is writing to, not to all the wealthy. In James chapter 1, he already concedes that there are wealthy people alongside of poor people in the community that he's writing to. And the Bible, at, at the bottom, bottom, bottom line, the Bible doesn't have a problem with wealth per se. If you read the gospel stories, Jesus, there were wealthy people around Jesus who used their resources to sponsor his ministry so he could do what it is that Jesus did. If you read the stories in the book of Acts, there were people people who had lands and houses and who would sell them just to make sure that everybody had enough. It wasn't being wealthy that was the problem. It was what you would call the ungodly wealthy that James is writing the letter to. People who have a, a certain sort of attitude towards their money and their stuff. People who start to care about their wealth more than they care about anything else. In one sense, James isn't saying anything different than his half-brother Jesus, who says in Matthew chapter 19 to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is hard to be rich and righteous at the same time. Why? First Timothy chapter six, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many grieves. James or uh, Timothy says, the reason it's hard for rich people to be righteous is because the enticements of greed to care about money and stuff more than you care about God and others will actually cause you to make decisions that can ruin your lives. And in James chapter 5, he describes four decisions that were made by the wealthy people that he's writing to that were the very reason why God was going to bring judgment on their lives. 
The first one, there was two decisions that they made with respect to how they treated themselves and two with respect to how they treated others. The first one is in James chapter five, verse two, it says this, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Here's the the charge. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. In the ancient world, there was three basic ways to store wealth. There was no no banks. There was no tax-free savings accounts, no market, no investment advisors or financial planners. There were three ways, three things you could invest in that appreciated in value in order to store your wealth. The first was grain. We're talking about landowners. So James doesn't mention grain. He says, your wealth has rotted. He means grain. So the second was garments. You could buy garments made with fine fabrics or dyed with expensive dyes. The reason that purple is the royal color was that it was so rare that only kings could afford it. Or you could invest in gold or silver. Everybody loves cash. And here's what James is saying to these wealthy people. He says, you have so much money and stuff that it's actually just sitting there rotting. You have more grain than you can sell and eat. And it's actually rotting in your barns. You have more clothes than a human being could possibly wear. And so they don't even get taken out of the closet and moths are eating them. You have so much gold and silver stashed underneath your house. It's actually getting tarnished. You have more stuff than you know what to do with. And you're hoarding it all for yourself. Charge number one. Here's charge number two, verse five. He says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. He says two things. He says, you have lived your life for luxury. The word in Greek basically means soft. In a world where everybody does hard physical labor, if you were rich enough, you didn't have to work and your body could go soft because you didn't have to do anything for yourself. You were living for comfort and ease. The second word is self-indulgence, pleasure. Living a life designed to surround you with the finer things, with nice things, to enjoy the luxury of the things that you could afford. It was a word used by the prophet Ezekiel to describe people who were overfed and underconcerned for the plight of the poor. James says, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've grown fat and happy. And he either means one of two things, and and the commentators are divided. He either means you've grown fat and happy. You've kind of fattened yourself up for your own judgment. Or you have grown fat and happy in a world where other people are literally dying from poverty and starvation. Why has he, what has he charged them with? Hoarding their wealth and living lives of luxury and self-indulgence while other people are dying. Two charges about how they treat other people. Verse four, 
He says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. In the ancient world, day laborers on a farm would be hired for one day at a time. They'd go in the morning to the labor pool, be picked by a farmer, go work for the day, and then be paid in cash at the end of that day. They literally lived a hand-to-mouth existence. We say paycheck to paycheck, but every day was payday. If you didn't get paid a fair living wage at the end of the day, you literally did not have what you needed to put money on the table for your kids or put food on the table for your kids the next day. If you didn't get paid, your kids starved. There were laws in Israel saying that it was a crime to not pay workers a fair living wage at the end of every single day. And James says, you rich farmers, rich farmers is sort of a phrase that sounds funny in our culture, but says you wealthy farmers are growing rich on the backs of the poor. You're growing rich by ripping off your workers by being unjust and unfair in how you pay them. And that is not okay. And then verse six, he says, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. The word condemned suggests a legal context. That in an environment where people had to go to courts to fight for their rights, These wealthy farmers were using the power and privilege, their friendship with the judges, using bribes or whatever they had at their disposal to win legal victories that at the end of the day were literally costing people their lives. James says, when this is how we live with our money and our stuff. We hoard it to ourselves so that we can live in luxury and self-indulgence. But we do it by ripping off other people, by stealing from the poor and using our power and privilege to suppress their rights. James says that is the kind of person whose wealth is under judgment by God. So what does this mean for us? 21, 20 centuries later, or whatever it is. Well, the inconvenient truth this week is this, that we live in an economic system called capitalism. And capitalism is a beautiful system in the sense that there is no other economic system devised in human history that has lifted more people out of poverty than capitalism. In fact, today, it is lifting people out of extreme poverty in rates that the UN could have never predicted 20 years ago. In the last 20 years, extreme poverty on our planet has been cut in more than half. And yet we live in this system that, among other things, not only has built these very temptations into the fabric of how it works, it actually celebrates the very things that James condemns. 
And if we're not careful, the way that we live as participants in our culture's economy, we can find ourselves drifting into the very sins that James condemns. And I think what James would want us to hear, James is inviting us to leave behind the kind of economics that he describes in James chapter 5, the kind of economics represented by the darker side of capitalism, to reject that sort of capitalist economy for a kingdom economy that reflects the person of Jesus in four ways, the same four ways he talks about in the text. First, I think James would invite us to reject an economy of accumulation, to reject an economy where the one who dies with the most toys wins. Tom Baudouin is a Catholic theologian who says that in many people's lives, capitalism actually functions like a religion. It actually does the very things for us that religions are supposed to do. It provides us with an identity. You get to build your identity based on the brands that you buy. It provides us with a community. Um, You find yourself in affinity with people who put their faith in the same brands that you do. So my watch died this week and I wanted to get a a watch for cycling, a GPS watch and so on. So I did, I bought a watch this week. And I said to Krista, my wife, I said, I think I'm going to get a Garmin. And she said to me sort of instinctively, oh yeah. She said, of course you're gonna get a Garmin. The whole running community wears Garmin. And it wasn't a bad comment, but it was just a way of saying, if you want to identify with the kinds of people who do athletics outdoors, this is the kind of product you need to buy. Baudouin says it provides us with ecstasy. It gives us the thrill of the shiny and the new and the beautiful, which I will confess that I experienced when I got my watch this week. It gives us the promise of conversion. Your life will be better if you put your faith in brand X. It gives us the promise of rest. 400 years after Jesus, St. Augustine said, my heart is restless, God, until it finds its rest in you. Capitalism says, no, your heart is restless until it finds its rest in the new and improved version of this. And James would invite us to reject the sort of economy of accumulation where we hoard our money and our wealth and our stuff for ourselves and instead replace it with an economy of redistribution. Jesus tells the story of a wealthy farmer who one year experienced surprisingly a bumper crop with so much excess that he didn't even know where to store it all. And as he looked at all of the wealth that his land had provided that year, he was basically confronted with two choices. He could keep it all for himself or he could share it with the poor who lived all around him who could certainly benefit from the excess that he unexpectedly had. The decision he made was to rent more storage units and build bigger barns and to keep it all for himself. And in the story, God says to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded of you. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Uh, If you hoard your stuff, God's gonna kill you. 
No, that's, that's not what Jesus means. What Jesus means is those of us who hoard our stuff, who, who keep our money and possessions, who just keep accumulating it for ourselves, will discover the futility of dying with toys, that it was all meaningless in the end. Because like Jeff said last week, you don't know what the future holds. So why, why hoard all this stuff for some future time when we can share out of our excess with those who have needs right now and today? Instead of, uh, what if, uh, just say it this way, what if we all made the commitment that every six months we were going to walk through our house and through whatever other spaces we have and just get rid of everything that we haven't touched in six months. De-accumulate. But not just de-accumulate, redistribute. Don't sell it on Kijiji so now you have more money. Get it into the hands of people who can use it. Or if nobody can use it or wants it, sell it on Kijiji and give the money to those who could use it? What if we rejected the economy of accumulation in favor of an economy of redistribution? Number one. Number two, what if we rejected an economy of consumption in favor of an economy of contentment? See, the farmers that James is writing to are building their lives towards the goal of ultimate comfort and ease. As if this is actually the purpose of life, is to be as comfortable and to live as easily as humanly possible, right? In our culture, we refer to it as the pursuit of happiness. And in Western North American culture, the pursuit of happiness means only one thing, and that is the pursuit of the American dream, rags to riches, having it all. The problem with the pursuit of the American dream, the pursuit of happiness, is that, happy, is that it will always, it's never a goal that you can arrive at. It's always only ever a pursuit. It's something you continually chase because it is something that continually requires more. The entire advertising industry exists to remind you that you do not yet have all the things that you need in order to be happy. And so instead of choosing a life of luxury and self-indulgence where we're pursuing a life of comfort and ease through the stuff that we consume, what if instead we reject all of that and instead choose a, a, an economy of contentment? Jesus says, in Matthew 16, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul, lose themselves in the process? You see, the thing about focusing on more, the thing about focusing on what we don't have is that it takes away from our happiness. Right? So this is true. Studies have been done. There is a strong correlation between money and happiness Right up until a salary of about $50,000 a year. If you could pay for your housing, fill your fridge with food, cover your bills and not worry that there won't be enough money at the end of the month. If you have enough to live on, that there is a strong correlation. When you don't have enough to live on, you are less happy than people who have enough to live on. And that makes perfect sense. 
But here's the interesting thing about these studies. Above $50,000 a year, there is zero correlation between more and happiness. You can earn $500,000, million, or $50 million a year, and there is no correlation between your happiness and your money. That money doesn't make you any happier than when you were, 50, when you were earning $50,000. Because here's the thing, when you focus on the more, it takes your eyes off of what you have. It actually generates discontentment in your life, and that makes you unhappy. If we could learn to be content with what we have, we could learn to live with less, and our happiness would go up. So what if we made the commitment that we don't need a new wardrobe every season? We don't need a new iPhone every year if we even need a phone at all. We don't need a new car every three years. We don't need more. What we need is to be grateful for the things that we have and ask God what we, how we could continue to redistribute the excess. Number three. James would invite us to reject an economy of profitability, and I'll explain what I mean in a minute, in favor of an economy of justice. Capitalism is driven by profitability. The only thing, literally the only thing that matters is growing the bottom line quarter after quarter after quarter. And in a purely capitalist mentality, everything and anything else can be sacrificed, must and will be sacrificed for the sake of the bottom line. If workers lose their job to automation, that's just how it goes. If environmental and safety regulations are ignored in the name of efficiency, that's just the way it's got to be. Companies can steal your data and sell it for a buck, and that's just how things go. Think about how the, the predatory business practices of large big box stores that come in and uh, essentially drive all the locally owned mom and pop shops out of business with their low, low prices. When the bottom line is all that matters, there are the people who will pick up the tab on that are the poor, are the workers, are those who, you know, don't get paid a fair living wage in order to have as many dollars go to the shareholders and the corporate owners rather than those who are working to create their value. What if we just rejected the idea that the most important thing is an expanding bottom line, whether it's personal or corporate? And what if we embrace the idea that the most important thing is actually justice? Jesus talks about how we're so afraid of the future, we're so afraid of not having enough, we're so afraid of going without, that we will literally do anything to save a buck. And yet Jesus says, those values are all backwards. In Matthew chapter 6, he says this, seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and God's righteousness. The Greek word actually means justice. And all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first God's kingdom with everything you do, including how you spend and earn your money. Seek first justice as your highest priority, even a higher priority than profitability. Seek first justice and you will discover that you will still have everything you 
need? What if we made the commitment to whether in, 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 as business owners, because I know there are some in the room, as business owners, we made the commitment to pay all our workers a fair living wage? What if we made the commitment to sacrifice some of our profitability to extend benefits to the people who are earning our, creating our value? What if we decided to value justice for those in our employ at a higher rate than profitability and an expanding bottom line? What if as consumers, we prized justice ahead of saving a buck? And so we don't go and shop at the cheapest stores who rely on sweatshop labor or who engage in predatory business practices just because they save us a buck. Instead, we learn to buy local. We learn to buy, we learn to buy from companies who pay a living wage. We learn to buy from companies who value the environment and who honor safety regulations. We learn to do things driven by justice first and profitability second. Fourthly, what if we rejected an economy of power and privilege for the sake of an economy of community? Uh, FBI psychologist Dr. Robert Hare says that uh, corporate behavior often manifests six characteristics. Not every corporation, but corporate behavior tends towards these kinds of characteristics. Number one, callous unconcern for others, which is how businesses can just operate on the labor of women and children because they don't care. Uh, incapacity for enduring relationships. So when a shop unionizes, the company shuts it down. When they've exhausted the resources of a community, they just pull up stakes and move on and leave the community to clean up the mess. A reckless disregard for safety, which is why companies offshore work to places that don't enforce safety regulations in the name of efficiency. They practice habitual deceit, which the entire advertising industry tends towards. They exhibit a failure to conform to social norms. Instead of living within the law, they use the law to live outside the law. The number of multi-billion dollar corporations that pay zero dollars in taxes to the very communities that are supporting them is absolutely staggering. And number six, they have an incapacity to experience guilt, which allows them to continue in the other five practices. Now, here's the interesting thing about what Dr. Robert Hare says in the documentary, The Corporation. Um, he says, if a human being demonstrated these six characteristics, they would be clinically diagnosed as a psychopath. The power and privilege that comes with success in a capitalist society tempts corporations and individuals to behave in psychopathic ways towards other people. What if we just rejected that entire idea of using my power and privilege to expand my power and privilege and instead we adopted an economy of community. If you're not an indigenous person, you have displaced an indigenous person. 
If you're not a person of color, you have benefited from a system of whiteness that was built by you and for you. If you are not a female, you have benefited from a patriarchy that advances men ahead of women all the time. What if instead of using the power and privilege that we have within the system that we've created to expand our own power and privilege, what if we used our power and privilege for the sake of the community to support indigenous entrepreneurs to support people of color to support the leadership of women to to actually use instead of like the farmers that James uh, was using instead of manipulating the systems in order to expand their own power and privilege um, submitting our power and privilege and leveraging it for the sake of the forgotten the ignored the abused the oppressed the marginalized and those who've been pushed to the curb What if we were to embrace a kingdom economy that was marked not by accumulation, consumption, profitability, and power and privilege, but was instead an economy of redistribution, contentment, justice, and community? I'll tell you what, it would look a whole lot like God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Because here's the good news, friends. This has been a hard morning, even for me, because honestly, I participate in all of the things that we've talked about this morning. But here's the good news. The Bible says that Jesus, who was rich, became poor for our sake so that we who were poor could become rich in him. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus was an example and the unleashing of the power for us to choose to live the life of Christ so that those of us who are rich could choose to impoverish ourselves, to decide that we have had enough in order to take those who are impoverished and make sure that they have enough. That's the life that Jesus wants to unleash in you. Let's pray that he makes us that kind of community. Heavenly Father, the love of money infects not just my heart, but I think every single heart in the room, if we're not careful. Would you set us free by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? Would you set us free from an economy of greed in order to live in an economy of generosity, an economy of redistribution, an economy of contentment and justice and community so that when people would look at the way we live in respect to our money and our stuff, they would say, man, that looks an awful lot like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.